Father God, I just pray you be with us, pray you speak to us, pray you challenge us. Um, you know, everyone here, you know, the different places and different ways that we've come here, the different things that have happened this week. Just meet with us, encourage us, shape us, help us to leave a different world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're continuing this, well, series called When in Rome. Do as the Romans do or don't, because um, Paul does kind of both in this letter. So last week we kind of talked about really the background setting, the tension that's going on. Um, there's a church, it's full of um, Hebrew Jewish people, um, but now a large Gentile number have grown up. People have been converted in the community and come to faith in Jesus. But there's a tension with that because the first group of people that were originally there came to relationship with Jesus for very different reasons. They came to relationship with Jesus because um, they believed he was their Messiah. The second group of people, they're also believing in him to be the one, but they're believing in him for a very different reason. They haven't got the history of the narrative and the story from the scriptures leading and pointing towards him. They've come to him because the catchy slogan that the Christians were using, those were the Jewish Christians were using, where the people at the time would say, Caesar is Lord, and they were saying, Jesus is Lord. And they found this story to be a better story than the Caesar story. So both of them have similar story in terms of Caesar was said to be deity, to be God, to be divine. Jesus was said to be God, to be divine. Caesar said, um, say Caesar is Lord or um, we stick you on two sticks. Um, Jesus' story was he still said he was Lord. Um, he didn't say Caesar was Lord, he said he was Lord. He ended up on two sticks, but he rose again. And there was a better way. There was a way where uh, leadership no longer subjected you to its suffering but where this leadership would take suffering in your place. And it was a better story. And so these people put their trust in Jesus to be Lord and to be divine because he conquered death and Caesar had never conquered death. And his way was a different way. And so they pursued it on these grounds. Now, when it came to conflict of the narratives between the two, though they had similarity, the, the Hebrew Jewish believers were trying to bring across some of the things that they felt were of value, things that they felt were of worth. And um, these guys that put their trust in Jesus were like, well, I didn't buy into that. That's not really what I, how I kind of came to this. So I'm not too sure that this is really... And so there was this conflict. So Paul is writing this letter with the two tensions in mind because he can't go too strongly in affirming what the, the Jewish Christians are saying because he will lose his Gentile audience. And he can't just um, give in to their argument because actually he'll be throwing away a history which he himself values and cherishes. So he's trying to do this uniting kind of faction. So because of that, it all starts today in Genesis um, 16. So we start with a part of the story, which is going to put forward his argument because their argument is um, around the law. So what Paul does is he goes to the narrative before the law came. So he starts with Abraham in, in chapter four. So we're literally not going to achieve too much today. We're only really um, going to achieve Romans chapter four. And that's all I'm setting out for us to kind of do. So in chapter 15 of Genesis, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your own son, your very own son, shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. So, we are in Romans 4, but Paul is wanting to connect with this story and this narrative. And the reason he wants to connect with this story for chapter 4 is because he wants to talk to them about faith. They've been having a discussion about works, so he wants to have a discussion about faith. Um, because faith is what will bring balance and wholeness to what they're saying. So he will say, yeah, there are great things in the law, but ultimately that's not the main, that's not the center point of what we need to be focusing on. So what then shall we say was granted Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Okay, so that psalm is Psalm 32. So we're going to have a little read of that psalm. It's a short one, but it's a beautiful piece of art. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Now, I love this particular passage and I was reading it this week because I saw the part in Romans 4 and I saw where he was quoting it from. I thought I want to read kind of through this psalm and um, it, it had a huge impact on me because of the reason we gave Eden the middle name Selah. And if you read through this psalm, it's a short psalm, it's like 11 verses long, it's, it's, it's tiny, it's absolutely tiny but it, within it it contains the gospel message and within it this, this, this piece of art this, this, this psalm that Paul is quoting and bringing their attention to in this moment is one that 
if we approach it the same way they do, so artistically it's written in, in, in rhythm, but it's also written in their rhyme scheme, which isn't like ours. It's not the last and the end words rhyming or the last two words rhyming or anything like that. It's based around expressing the same thing twice. So you say, so it's duality. You say the same thing, but you express it in two different ways. And that's what they consider their poetic art form. So blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. It's not because the spirit never had deceit, but because the Lord has forgiven it that this guy, his spirit has no deceit. He feels light. He feels free. And so in this passage, what it does is it leads down and then it expresses... Um, so in the first, two ver- the first two verses, you have um, the picture of what it is like to be forgiven. Then it talks about what we, a lot of us can identify with is what it feels like before we're forgiven. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. And sometimes when you have anxiety, high levels of anxieties, fear, worries, um, things you're self-conscious of with your image, with how you see yourself, how you see other people, how you regret certain things that you've done in your life, those kind of things, this, that's exactly how it artistically feels. I kept silent, my bones wasted away. You know, sometimes when we go through really emotional traumas, it doesn't stay with our emotions. It actually filters out into our body. That sometimes you can go through real times of anxiety and pressure and fear and worry and um, negative image about yourself and it can cause you physical harm. So what starts off being a mental issue, what starts off being an emotional issue, can lead to mental illness, health, mental illness. It can lead to physical illness. And this psalmist is basically writing down to what it means to be whole, what it means to be well, what it means to be at peace. So what he's saying here is, when God forgives us, our spirit is light. So like emotionally you feel lifted. It feels like there's no burden. It's beautiful, it's wonderful. When we keep silent, our bones waste away through my groaning all day long. If you've spent time with someone who's going through some stuff that they're not letting go of, that they're not bringing to God, oh my gosh, talk about groaning all day long. I'm telling you, like, oh, it's just this constant ebbing and flowing. And it's like they want a solution to their situation. And sometimes you're like, you know what? You've really got to let go of this. Like, you've got to let go of the result of getting the closure you want to see happen here. You've really got to kind of let go and think about your health, think about your wellness, and is this worth it? You're clinging on to this, but it is literally killing you. It is literally killing the person that you are. It's killing the person I like hanging out with. It's killing the person I like spending time with. It's killing the person I like talking to. It's in your bones, and it is aching, and it is groaning just all day long, this constant rhythm of everything that isn't good. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up as by the heat of summer. And it says Selah, right there and then. And that's a great place to say it, stop right there. Because what, what that does is, is a lot of people say Selah is like pause, like a, a reflection, and, and it is, but it, it isn't at the same time. For the Hebrew people, what they had was they had a thing which they called glory. So they talked about God having glory. Now glory means weight, that's all it means. It means heavy. So this person is dealing with something heavy and he's talked about it. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Um, glory means, means heaviness. And then what Sila means is Sila means you, it is a pause, it is a reflection, but it's a reflection to weigh. So all it means is it, before making a decision, before actioning something, you hold it in your hand and you feel the weight of it, whether this is worthwhile, whether I want this, whether I need this. So here at this moment, it's talking about, well, this is what the gospel is. God forgives us. This is what that feels like, a light spirit. 
when you don't have that, your bones are wasting away. There's a heaviness on you because God's glory is resting upon something that is, that is sin, that is the wrong way, that is missing in peace, that is missing um, balance, that equilibrium, that, re- that correct, correct place with God. And so this moment in the psalm, it just says, Selah, now weigh that up. Now what do you want? Do you want a light spirit or do you want your bones rotting away? Do you want a light spirit or do you want that heaviness that just doesn't go away and is consistently resting upon you? That's what the psalmist is doing. So he pauses and reflects here for the person to weigh it up. Well, you think about this. So it would be like, it would be a really weird, like obviously this is a song and this is something that, 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 that David's kind of done. But like if we were to take this properly, what we would do is we'd read those two verses, four verses, and then we would stop and we'd weigh it up and we'd make a decision. And once we made that decision, we'd then continue on to the next bit. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then he says again, Selah. He says, take that in for a moment, just stop. So you had this situation where there was a lightness that was available to you. You had aching in your bones and you had heaviness. What did you decide to do? Well, here's what I decided to do. I acknowledged my sin to you. I came and I said, this is me. I didn't cover it up, I didn't hide it. I confessed my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah, weigh that up. Is this what you're gonna do? Are you gonna continue to sit back and hide? Or are you gonna bring it out? Are you gonna hold it in your hand? And then you're gonna say, wow, this has real merit. This is gonna relieve so much. Okay, I make my decision. And then you follow on. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Stop. Chill out for a second. We've moved from an individual story and narrative to a collective story and narrative. Now it's as a group. Now it's collectively together we're going to do this thing and we're going to weigh this thing up. And at the end of it, it's going to lead to shouts of deliverance. Then we move on after we've weighed that up. Is that what it's going to lead to? I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, you upright in heart. So when we look at this psalm, and when we look at where Paul just quotes this up, and he just brings out the first, the very first first part of it in Romans 4, he said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He brings up this, everything we've talked about, he brings up for one of the audience. For part of the audience that are there, they won't really know about this psalm. For the other part of the audience, he'll be doing something very brilliant with them. Because for them, they as a small child have learned the, the scriptures off by heart. 
and they've learned the commentators and the opinions of various different rabbis. And so when he brings this up to them, he brings up something they will have meditated on regularly, something they will have held in their hand like a weight that they will have thought about, and then he will be making them aware of the time. It says about in that psalm, at the correct time, when he will hear you, you come to him. He's relaying this whole message to them. At the same time, he's pointing out this. The most important part he's highlighting, which is um, that our sins are forgiven, that it's by faith that this happens. He's tied them in before the law with Abraham. He's tying them in after the law with David. And David still says that God hears our sins and forgives us in amongst a time when the law is all that they know. He's pointing at a bigger context which his Jewish audience will know. And at the same time, he's revealing a subtle message to them of like, this is the time to be heard. And this is no longer just an individual thing. But in halfway through that psalm, it becomes uh, a larger context of a group. They're now in the larger context of a group. And at the same time as saying, this is about sin being forgiven. This is about faith, not about works. He's also saying to them, you have to think about more than just yourself. And that you no longer can put forward just the Jewish agenda while you have these Gentiles with you. That this is the time when all are heard, let everyone, let everyone come and offer prayers to him. That everyone will experience that same release. That no longer will there be that heaviness against them. But that they will find release and lightness of spirit. That they will find joy. That they will find peace. That they will encounter God's goodness. And how does that happen? That doesn't happen by a code of conduct. That happens by faith. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him, as it was before or after he'd been circumcised? Was it not? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith and our father Abraham had before he was circumcised for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir to of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be granted to all his offspring, not only to the ad- adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, in whom he believed. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist? In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, 
but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What I love about this is he makes it all about faith and faith and salvation. But what he does at the end is, is quite brilliant. He brings in the, the humanity. He brings in human nature. He brings in something that every single one of us can identify with. Because though Abraham heard something from God, he heard something from God which was completely at odds with his reality. And I think so often for us, when those situations occur, where God speaks something that is opposing to what we know around us to be real and to be what we would say true through our experiences, we then tend to write off what God says. But what Paul says here is about Abraham, that he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So it wasn't just his self, but also his wife. And looking at that situation, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I think often in life, this is where faith and Christianity separate. I think a lot of times people were happy to believe in dogma, and I think people are happy to believe in doctrine. And I have many friends who will hide behind dogma and, um, and doctrine. And dogma and doctrine can be good things, and, and they're great things. Doctrine is a fantastic thing. It teaches us what to believe, and this is, this is doctrine. This is part of the doctrine of faith. But ultimately, having a doctrine of faith and no faith is irrelevant. Well, great, you can explain to me what faith is. Fantastic for you. You're a walking, talking, theological dictionary. It's great. Is that, is that where you want to, what, what you want your life to be marked by? Do you want to be, like, don't get me wrong, Paul had real faith and you can hear his faith in Acts and about how he lived his life and he had real faith and you can read the story of Abraham and you say, wow, he had real faith. But so often, what we tend to prize because of what we have as a system of, of expression of Christianity is we'll come to a church or we'll come into a place like this. We'll have a conversation around a topic We'll listen to what's said, and then we'll see that as, as what, what we aim for. Well, actually, that's not really what we aim for. What we aim for is to live lives like Abraham, that trust God. We live lives that hear what he has to say for us as an individual, and then we look to trust him regardless of what our circumstance says. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing is believing what God says. So sometimes when we look at a letter like this, we can take this and we can get some really good doctrines out of it. That's fantastic and that's brilliant. That's not living the dream for me. And that's not even hashtag winning. I'm not, I'm not involved. Because you can have a doctrine of faith and you can tell me about it. But if you can't tell me about your faith and how you're trusting him, I'm not involved. Because Abraham didn't then go around as a doctrine of faith. What Abraham was, he was of a Hebrew mentality. He wasn't of a Greek wisdom which actually later on, uh, by the way, Paul in this very letter 
cause foolish, foolishness. So it's ironic because Paul is seen very often as the one we see as the reason for standing behind doctrine. And yet Paul, although he argues that case, later in his letter when he speaks to his Greek audience, he, he talks about God wanting to use, um, connect you through, mis- disprove Israel's um, disobedience through the foolishness of other nations. And he's talking about the very method he's using. So he's not even a fan of that method. But David, um, Abraham, lives this life and he lives it and so often there are guys and there's guys who've made a lot of money and done very well and they've done a fantastic job and some of their books have really encouraged me as well where you've written this book about an idea and I'm guilty of it I've written a book about an idea and about something that happens but I don't want to be known as someone who wrote about Peter's faith like Peter walked on water and there are guys who've written a book about Peter walking on water and that's great because those books are really encouraging and inspiring but I don't want my life to be known as someone who wrote a book about someone who walked on water. I want to be someone who walks on water. And um, I would like to say at this time, I've tried ever since I was five years of age, and it, it hasn't worked out for me yet um, in the swimming pool. But it's worked out for me in a number of ways. It worked out for me age 15 when a guy, 20 guys surrounded me, put a crowbar to my head that were after me, and said, who do you know? And I used to roll with a different, I used to roll with a gang they didn't like. And in that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit tell me, because I decided I was gonna live for Jesus, that I would just tell him when he asked me who do I know he wanted to know that I'd got new backup that he so he wouldn't touch me or if I had the same backup he'd escalated he was just going to deck me so that's what his question was really asking who do you know I felt God say I know Jesus I'm standing in this alleyway on my own with 20 guys I have a crowbar to my head about to smash my face in and the only thing that God has given me to, in this scenario is to say I know Jesus which I know fully am aware will either put me in hospital leave me disabled for the rest of my life or God's going to work a miracle. So what do you do? Do you get hospitalised? 15 years of age, you're a bit more fear, fearless than, although I was afraid. <laughs> Dark alleyway, no one going to hear me, going to get banged. And I literally said, I know Jesus. And he was like, bang, Christian gets walking. Who do you know? I know? I know Jesus. He pulls the group up back one last time and he goes, who do you know? Jesus, and then he looks at his mates and goes, I've heard it's his birthday coming up. Uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, good one. Oh, yeah, okay, chill, <laughs> chill. You know what happened? Nothing. Then he hit me that crowbar. Eventually he took his hand off me, just stared at me funny. I just turned away and walked home. And I found out very simply, that actually, if I'd even said who I knew, I, I, I actually probably would have more likely got rushed than I would have, if they didn't like who I was with, then by telling him now, my allegiance wasn't with that. My allegiance was Jesus. And God looked after me. He looked after me. I can think of time and time again, the different scenarios. Some of them I've come away from really hurt and I've really struggled. But when it's got to the end of it, at the final, the final stage of that situation, I've, I found God to be true. I found him one to be worthy of living my life for. And so the idea of today is I want to give you a doctrine of faith, but actually I want to tell you that you need to live lives like Abraham because you can have a doctrine of faith today, but if you walk away from here and you're not believing what you're hearing from God, then um, it's meaningless and it's irrelevant. So this Sunday morning will have either been the greatest waste of your time, which um, could quite possibly be, or you can make a decision this morning and it can be reckoned to you as righteousness. Um, I am going to pray for us but I want to say one thing before I, I finish because I've gone on longer than I normally do is, is it simply this is with Abraham he was told that he was going to have a son and he was too old to have a son and so was his wife but he still believed God right now 
at whatever crossroad you're in in your life, whatever stage you're at in your life, there may be something for you that isn't a salvation message. It's just a part of your life that he's speaking to you that I want to do this in your life. And you may be in a place where you have stopped believing, where you've stopped believing him for that, where you've stopped trusting him for that. And um, I'm going to go out on a limb this morning and I'm going to say that that's not righteous. And what is righteous and considered right is believing him and trusting him. It's okay to have found yourself in a place where you can no longer believe what he said will happen. That's okay. It's not okay to stay there. It's not okay to carry on living in that place because otherwise you end up with a doctrine of faith. You don't end up with faith. And so this morning, what we're gonna do is in this time where I'm gonna pray for us, I would encourage you for yourselves to say to God, I turn around and I will believe what you have said of me. And regardless of what that is, I will trust you and I will follow you because I know that with Abraham you are faithful and I believe you'll be faithful to me as well. Okay. Father, I thank you for the story of Abraham. I thank you for how Paul uses it in his letter to the Romans. I thank you that he shows to them that faith is what it's all about. And you can have ideas, you can have understanding, you can have teaching, you can have all these things. But if we don't trust you for what you have said of us to be true, everything is meaningless and everything falls apart. I pray for some of us here today that maybe have never heard you speak to us in the way that you've spoken to Abraham personally. I pray that you would do that in these coming weeks. I pray that you would speak to us what it is you want us to do with our lives. The greatest day in our lives is when we find out why we're here and what we're here for. I pray like Abraham, you would speak to us and we would know why we're here and what we're here for and what our purpose is in your picture, in your plan, in your mosaic. I just pray that you would speak to us. I pray also, just like the psalm we looked at today, that some of us may have came come here this morning with a heavy weight on our shoulders may we take time to seal up to weigh it up for ourselves to come to you and to lay it into your hands that we would find lightness of spirit again that we would be whole that we would find peace that we would know your goodness holy spirit we just ask that you would come now and rest upon us in jesus name amen